Welcome in to a special edition of the PHNX D-backs podcast. My name is not Derek Montia or Patrick Lyons. I am Jesse Friedman. I know all of you have not uh, heard a whole lot from me over the last couple of weeks as I've been on the road and I'm just sort of on the show for these little 10 minute a uh, little 10 minute segments every now and then from the ballpark. But uh, I am here because the Arizona Diamondbacks are in the World Series somehow. Uh, and uh, it feels like we need a full on World Series preview podcast. Uh, so even though we didn't have our normal live show scheduled today, figured I would uh, throw this together and got a couple of guests joining me here today. Derek is Derek is off uh, getting a much deserved day off uh, today. But uh, in this first part of the show, I am joined by someone who knows everything about the Texas Rangers, or at least a whole lot more than I know about the Texas Rangers. Uh, we are joined by Bryce Patrick, who hosts the Locked On Texas Rangers podcast. If you're interested in uh, sort of what's been going on in Rangers land over the past few weeks or sort of how they've gotten here, any of those storylines, be sure to check out his work. Uh, Bryce, thanks for uh, thanks for hopping on. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me, man. Happy to be on talking ball about two excellent teams and what should be a very, very fun and totally not at all stressful World Series. It's uh it's a really fascinating World Series in in a lot of ways. Uh I I guess primarily because there's this contingent of people that that like kind of hates it, right? There's this group <laughs> of people that are saying like like no one's going to watch this. We don't have any of the big media markets involved right like there's no la team there's no there's no chicago team there's no philly team uh but it's the arizona diamondbacks and the texas rangers just as everyone anticipated the world series was going to be um but yeah just a a fun matchup as you said of of uh, two two teams that at least as of late have been very good i know the texas rangers were extremely good uh for for you know a good portion of the season we do power rankings every week on on our show, and I remember the Texas Rangers being, you know, firmly in our top five for for a good portion of the year. But yeah, I guess my my first question, Bryce, is just like from a thirty thousand foot view for for listeners for for viewers who might not know the Rangers very well. What makes the Texas Rangers good? How have they how have they gotten to this point? Well, only top five, not top three. Already disrespecting the Rangers. <laughs> <laughs> we might have. They might have been top three. They might have been top three. I'd have to. I'd have to go check. It wouldn't surprise me if they were top three at some point. I got to find any kind of motivation because both these teams are so likable. It's like there's, there's no, there's no real, not a whole lot of villains to choose from. But what makes Although this team they are, so good? They are uh, rivals, right? Like in the official sense, like they are the they established are? ML. Well, yeah, like Major League Baseball. I'm forgetting the official term for it, but they establish like like rivalries that you play uh, two and two, right? Two games at home, two games on the road. And the Diamondbacks and Rangers have like been matched up in that way in the same way that like the Cubs and the White Sox have been matched up. So, but yes, uh, I, I think we can all agree <laughs> that the Diamondbacks and Rangers are not exactly, they don't have years of, of uh, you know, pent up hatred over each other or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, nothing like that. For this Rangers team, it kind of came together. I mean, both of these teams were 100 lost teams a couple of years ago. The Rangers, you know, went about it in a different way than the Diamondbacks. I mean, the Rangers had some some homegrown players and but they spent very big in free agency in their middle infield. They got Corey Seager and Marcus Simeon both within 48 hours of each other, spent half a billion dollars on both those guys worth 
every single penny. This offense has been one of the best in all of baseball, not just in those top two stars, but in its depth. I mean, the Rangers had six all-stars this year, and five of them were hitters. Jonah Heim, the catcher, Marcus Simeon, Corey Seager up the middle, Josh Young as well, and Adolis Garcia, who is just the man of the moment right now. I mean, seven home runs for him in the postseason, and I believe about a 1,000 in the last couple of games against the Houston Astros where he put them to bed. They've got really good starting pitching that has been very hurt, so their top two is very good right now in Jordan Montgomery and um, Nathan Eovaldi. But they signed uh, Jacob deGrom, who had Tommy John surgery, made six starts for the Rangers. They're very fun, very good. But alas, only six starts. The Rangers have dealt with some injury problems with uh, a lot of their starters. I mean, even Jordan, not Jordan Montgomery, sorry, uh, Nathan Eovaldi, dealt with some injury issues as well. Yeah. So it was a team that was very good, dealt with a lot of injuries in the back half, and then kind of found their footing basically the second the playoffs started, not not a second earlier. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating to me that the Rangers have made it here with Jacob deGrom, like po- like probably the best pitcher in baseball when healthy is just like not pitched for them whatsoever. Uh, and it's also interesting because like on the Diamondback side, their highest paid player in 2023 is Madison Bumgarner, who was designated for assignment, you know, uh, just a few months ago. And like a few years ago, like Jacob deGrom against Madison Bumgarner. I mean, that would have been sort of legendary postseason matchup and of course we're not we're not going to see that in the series but uh yeah i want to i want to go back to adolis garcia uh who's kind of seems to be the the engine powering this rangers offense i know Corey seager's been outstanding i mean maybe he's sort of the the real engine i don't know i guess they're sort of interchangeable what really fascinates me about garcia is that i don't believe he's walked at all in the postseason nope. i don't he's he, not he has been hit, he has been hit by a pitch so uh, <laughs> a very important hit by pitch that uh, really did not make him feel very good. And uh, later the Astros are going to uh, ended up regretting that, but he is, yes. he is an aggressive player. And it's funny that he hasn't walked this postseason because the whole story about what unlocked him this year, he was a guy who I'm sure everyone has kind of heard the story by now. He was, you know, a, a Cuban player. He defected, went to Japan and, you know, ended up coming over to the States to play with the Cardinals. They basically, traded him for cash considerations and then the rangers themselves i mean there's been a lot of dunking on the cardinals for giving him up and all the other players that they've given up which is fun um because of what the cardinals did to the rangers when they saw them in the 2011 world series but the rangers also dfa'd him at the beginning of 2021 to keep mike fulty nevich on their opening Mm. day roster um yeah and then he came up a month later and he was sensational for the first half, and he struggled. He's a very raw player, a lot of toolsy, very toolsy player, very fast, biggest arm in all of baseball, and a lot of raw power, but a lot of swing and miss. And this yeah. year, he's still striking out a lot, but he was walking significantly more, being much more patient, not chasing pitches out of the zone. And then the thing that really kind of flipped the switch in the last couple of games, it was it was basically on that grand slam in game six. He was 0 for 4 with four strikeouts. Rangers were up just one run, I believe, at that point in the top of the ninth inning against the Astros. With bases loaded, Dolos Garcia just shortens up his stroke and hits an absolute missile for a grand slam. And that's been the key with him is when he's not trying to do too much, when he's not trying to swing out of his shoes, he's got such insane raw power that especially on fastballs up and high velocity, just let your raw power and then the fastball do all the work. And he did that in game seven when he went four for five with, uh, I think it was about 
five or seven RBIs. I can't remember in a pair of home runs and nearly had a third home run that uh, if it was like about five feet higher, uh, would have been into the Crawford boxes. But just, I mean, he is electric. This is a team that's very stoic in general in their demeanor. Corey Seager, Marcus Simeon, not exactly the most boisterous, loud personalities, very more reserved, sure. but. I mean, Adolis Garcia, when he hits a home run, he is going to stand there. He is going to watch it. He's going to throw his bat and he's going to jog around the base pass with a smile that could light up the entire state of Texas. I mean, the guy is just the absolute heart of this team. And while Corey Seager might be, you know, the guy who is more flashy might be have a higher war, but he is just such an important part of this team that has been here. One of the few has been here through the lean years and into this new fantastic era of texas rangers baseball yeah i mean as i'm kind of looking at you know comparing these two teams on paper and trying to figure out like where the big advantages and and disadvantages for both teams it seems like offense is pretty clear the rangers have the advantage there at least on paper of course that doesn't mean that over you know five or six games the d-backs couldn't come out and out hit the rangers those those kinds of things happen um but uh but yeah i mean this rangers offense with seager with Garcia, I know there are guys who haven't hit as much in the playoffs, but were really good in the regular season, like Jonah Heim. It's just a really well-rounded team offensively, one of the best offensive teams in baseball. And yeah, I like the Diamondbacks just, you know, were able to get by the Philadelphia Phillies who have a really good offense. This Rangers offense is is right up there, maybe even a little bit better than that Phillies offense. So that's going to be a, a big challenge for for the Diamondbacks in this series. There's, there's no question about that. Moving over to the, the pitching side of things, I think this is where the two teams are pretty even, at least on paper, or at least there's no like there's not a, a, a big advantage on paper for, for either of these teams. I guess we'll start on the starting pitching side. The Rangers have announced Nathan Eovaldi as their starter in game one going against Zach Gallen for the Diamondbacks. Eovaldi has has a really good postseason track record. I think he has like a 2-8 career ERA and in, in a pretty decent number of postseason innings. Been really good for, for the Rangers so far uh, here in the playoffs in, in 2023. Jordan Montgomery, uh, I expect, will we'll start game two. He's been a really, really big weapon for them. Someone the Diamondbacks were uh, supposedly interested in at the trade deadline. He wound up being traded to to the Rangers uh, from, from the Cardinals instead. Uh, but yeah, I mean, like that... That front two, Montgomery and Eovaldi, compared with the Diamondbacks front two of Zach Gallen and Merrill Kelly, it seems pretty even to, to me on paper. Um, I, I know Eovaldi went through some injuries this year. Um, you know, what didn't didn't get to log a, a full season in, in the way that the Gallen and I guess Merrill Kelly did have an injury, but he still made like 28, 29 starts at pretty much a full season. But I guess those top two starters, Bryce, I mean, what what do you think in terms of like how those compare? Is that would you call that sort of a draw between these two teams? I think so. I mean, all four of those guys that you just mentioned, like they're all really, really good. And, you know, I, I thought that the D-backs would be more aggressive in that. But I mean, the Rangers, they traded a lot to get Jordan Montgomery and he is just rentally also got yeah. a reliever Chris Stratton because they needed every reliever they could get. I mean, the two guys that they traded, the Rangers had an amazing 2020 draft that includes uh, young Evan Carter as the second round pick that they were so happy with, but their third and fifth round picks um, to Koa Roby, who is a starting pitcher who might've been the best starting pitching prospect in the Rangers system, depending on who you asked at the time. And he was absolutely crushing it. And Thomas Sejaci, who um, was, I believe the Texas league player of the year in double a um, who they traded also in that deal, um, a very big price for a couple rental pieces, but 
they've paid off. And then I think it really comes down. A lot of it's going to come down to the number three starter, which like yeah. if you had asked us in the beginning of the season, it was like, oh, this like the Texas Rangers and the Arizona Diamondbacks in the World Series. And it's game three. Your game three starters are Brandon Fott versus Max Scherzer. Who has an advantage? It have been like... <laughs> Um, wow, hmm, that's a real that's a real tough question, but it kind of is at this point. I mean, Max Scherzer struggled in his first couple of starts off the IL. I mean, the injury that he sustained was supposed to be, I mean, the initial target date, what we thought he'd be back was like three days after game seven of the World Series. But yeah, I mean, he is just blown by every expectation because the dude's an absolute freak. Like he's just so obsessed with everything. But I mean, those first two starts against the Astros where he was not great but not terrible they were rehab starts in the alcs right which is insane but the rangers kind of needed it so this is i think game three is going to be so crucial in so many ways I and mean, we'll see how those first two games go i mean the rangers their whole strategy in the alcs was like you have got to win the games with jordan montgomery and nathan evaldi on the hill and then pray you're at least okay in the other games and um that might have to be the strategy again here but i mean i think the top two in this Arizona Diamondbacks rotation is better than the Astros top two. Cause I mean, the Rangers just absolutely shelled from Valdez and they did. Yeah. Okay. against Gus Verlander. Yeah. It, the game three really is going to be fascinating. And uh, yeah, I mean, Brandon fought had a ERA over nine in his first six major league starts this year. So the fact that we're talking about him in, in game three in the world series, <laughs> like potentially having an advantage over Max Scherzer is, is wild. I did. I did read something about Scherzer having a, a thumb issue of some sort. I think it was after after his last start. Is that is that at all a concern at all coming into the series? Is he seen as being pretty healthy as as far as we know, other than just kind of the you know work, still working his way back from the shoulder injury? Yeah, I think so. And I think that a lot of the the stats that really got blown up from the first game, like it, it sounds, you know, kind of dumb to say of like, you know, he was really great on the pitches that he was great on, but the ones he wasn't, he wasn't. But that's kind of the case. Like the mistakes that he made, like he looked a lot sharper than I thought he would. The stuff looked a lot better. It was just a lot of rust. And there was less of that in the second game. He was able to pitch out of more jams, but there was a shorter leash because it's game seven and you have Jordan Montgomery ready to come in and, you know, take over and Thankfully, the Rangers offense did enough to where, you know, they could pull him and they felt okay with it. But I, I think that Scherzer, after those first couple of games, I think there'll be a longer leash in a game three um, than there obviously was in a game seven. Um, but I, I feel pretty confident in him. He he knows his body. He knows what he can do. And even if he's not ready to go, I mean, the Rangers have a lot of long relief slash potential, um, you know, former starters that are there. I mean, they've got Dane Dunning. They've got Martin Perez. They've got Andrew Heaney. They've got John Gray for whatever capacity he's going to be in. I'm not sure what capacity he's going to be in. Um, mm. But we've also got, they've also got Cody Bradford, who had – one absolutely stellar outing against the Baltimore Orioles in that game too, where Jordan Montgomery was just not his normal self. And I think it was three or four innings that Bradford gave them of shutout baseball to kind of keep that game at an arm's length and really um, was an underrated huge part of this postseason run. So we get to game four and I don't know if either of these teams exactly know what that's going to look like, at least from the Diamondback standpoint, going to be a bullpen game that's that's uh that seems pretty pretty sure i i guess pretty good chance you see joe mance apply there is the opener just as we saw in, in game four for the d-backs against the phillies 
But what is what does that look like for for the Rangers? I know against the the Astros, I believe they started Andrew Heaney in that game. He wasn't throwing well. They went to Dane Dunning. He wasn't throwing well. What does Game Four look like for for the uh, for the Rangers? Do you think? I think at this point it'll kind of depend on how Game Three went because um, it it depends if it's if it's a game where they're throwing where Max Scherzer is throwing well. I don't know what the pitch count is going to be limited to. It was at seventy his first start, and I don't remember how many he threw in Game Seven. It was a lot fewer than 70, maybe around 50. Um, so I don't know if he'll be able to go like 80 or 90 or maybe feel like he's back up to almost full speed, but it'll kind of depend. They've got it on which one of those guys they'll use in which situation. But at this point, I would assume it'll be the Andrew Heaney, Dane Dunning combo. They used those guys in game one of the ALDS and they were uh, fantastic against the Orioles and the Rangers were able to steal that one against Kyle Bradish, which was like, that was the kind of sign to me. Yeah. Like, oh, oh, this team is on something different. Because I said, I'm like, oh, if the Rangers take game one, which felt like a long shot, and they made it a one-run win, and it was an absolute nail-biter. But like, if they do that, they could sweep this Orioles team, and they did. So, I mean, Heaney and Dunning are, are both good. Dunning had a great season. Heaney had moments where he was very good, and they're both very different kinds of pitchers. I mean, Heaney's a lefty, and he's very fastball slider-oriented and a lot of high yeah. spin rate, high in the zone. Dane Dunning is more of a kitchen sink kind of guy, throws a sinker and a very good slider cutter changeup four seamer um curveball as well he's got a lot of pitches um <laughs> more pitchability um and he's a right-hander so it's like two very different distinct looks and that's why i think that works pretty well um but we'll see it kind of depends on who they have to use what you know the series is at at that point if they're up if they're down um but that's my best guess is is going to a heaney dunning combination and then you see where you go from there. Yeah, I, I guess in terms of just the that game four will probably, as you said, depend on you know what happens in the games preceding it. If you know maybe some guys have to be used in situations that teams didn't really want to use them, and so they become not available, or you know the game plan sort of changes. Um, as far as the Rangers bullpen goes, th- this is where it gets like really interesting to me. Where this D-backs bullpen has been an asset for them in the playoffs, which is, you know, a couple of months ago would have sounded ridiculous. Uh, the Diamondbacks had, I think they were, you know, 23rd or something in bullpen ERA as of September 1st. And then suddenly, you know, Paul Seawald in the mix, Ryan Thompson, Andrew Saul, Frank, all these guys come in and, and kind of, you know, made at least the back end of this bullpen good. What is, what is the the state of the Rangers bullpen? Is that viewed my outside perspective is that is maybe viewed as sort of like a weakness. We don't quite know how this is put together sort of a thing. Yeah. I mean, this was historically like historically bad bullpen. The Rangers had 30 saved this year and they blew 33. Like no team that has had wow. that bad a bullpen has ever come close to this far. I mean, if the Rangers had even an average bullpen, they honestly might've been like a 105 win team. Like it was just, nuts how many games this team blew in the bullpen i mean for the longest time will smith was the only reliable option in the bullpen jose the clerk was the opening day starter he was dealing with a lot of injuries i mean he basically missed two years with a combination of tommy john and also issues with his shoulder and now down the stretch he is a guy who he's got a a very live fastball is usually around like 93 95 um with a lot of spin a lot of deception a lot of different pitches he's got a like so many different pitches he's got what they call a slider is really a cut change up 
it is two different kinds of changes. You've got the circle change that moves arm side and the cut change, or he is, as he calls it, a slambio. It's a very devastating pitch. Uh, I think it might also sometimes show up as a cutter in StatCast. Like they literally don't know what to do with it. Um, but he started throwing <laughs> a lot harder. And when you've got that much more velocity along with that spin rate, it makes you very, very unhittable. So the Rangers basically have three arms they trust in the bullpen. They've got in their ninth inning, they've got Leclerc as the closer now. In their eighth inning, they've got Aroldis Chapman, which I think we all know how the Aroldis Chapman experience goes. I mean, he they found <laughs> the one role that works for him. There's a lot of situations where he does not do well. He does very poorly on back-to-back days. So that's something very much to watch. He does very poorly when he's asked to go multiple innings or pitch literally any inning outside of the eighth, like extra innings, ninth inning, seventh inning, all very bad for him. Back-to-back days, very <laughs> bad. But the eighth inning, with at least a day's rest, he's usually fine. And then you have Josh Spores, who don't be fooled by his 550 ERA in the regular season. He's got some really nasty stuff, and he's been on another level in the playoffs. A guy who throws upper 90s with a lot of spin. I mean, his fastball has a lot of characteristics that are similar to um, Jacob deGrom's fastball and Spencer Strider's fastball. Like, that's wow. the kind of stuff that they've got on it. And he was a high pick by the Dodgers, who they kind of gave up on. And for years, the Rangers have been trying to figure out is Josh Bores an elite back-end guy or is he not? And just like wavering back and forth. And even as as recently as like September, where the Rangers had to put him on the IL, I was like, all right, it's over. The experiment has failed. He has had some great <laughs> moments, had some great months, but you're done. You're not a smarter pitching developing organization than the Dodgers. And they knew something that I didn't. Probably several things, honestly. And he has been <laughs> a, a sensation in these playoffs. So those guys, seven, eight, nine. Pretty solid outside of that. Uh, Chris Stratton will occasionally show up. He was ha- had some effectiveness, but he was used so much during the regular season, like the most innings by a relief pitcher um, kind of, I think, wore him out. And so he has kind of been less trustworthy. Will Smith has been relegated to nothing innings at this point. And then they've got all those long guys that I mentioned before. And we'll see if John Gray might be a, a guy who pitches in late relief. Um, at this point, I wouldn't be surprised if they, you know, need an eighth inning and Chapman has already pitched the day before and John Gray is ready. I wouldn't be surprised if he got an, an outing or two in a situation like that. Or if you need a couple innings, you're not quite sure if you're if you're, if the game's like tied in the eighth inning and you might need him to go too. I think they could go to John Gray, but it's a lot of mixing and matching. A lot of guys who, um, you know, have had some bad seasons, but I mean. You get enough guys clicking at the right time. Bullpens are all really finicky, and that's really all you need. You need like two, three guys that are hot in in the late months in October, and any pen can be okay. Yeah, I mean, speaking of speaking of you know bullpens that have guys clicking at the right time, Paul Seawald and Kevin Ginkle haven't given up a run. Either of them, neither of them have given up a run to this point in the postseason, which is a really big reason why the Diamondbacks have gotten to the to the point that they are. If they have, you know, a four-two lead or whatever it is in the sixth or seventh inning, they've basically turned those games into wins a hundred percent of the time in the playoffs. They've they've stolen some games against other teams' bullpen, other teams' bullpens. They really haven't ever had a game stolen from from their bullpen. Um, so I mean, that that's certainly been a, a big asset for, you know, a team that isn't necessarily blowing, uh, blowing the opponent away, at least at least the majority of the time, um, I, I guess, defensively, uh, don't necessarily know how big of a role that that's going to wind up playing in this series. But I guess it, it at least warrants a conversation. D-backs have Gabby Moreno behind the plate. 
you know, one of the one of the best, probably the best base stealing preventer in, in all of baseball. You know, the Rangers have a, a really good arm back there in, in Jonah Heim. Uh, could, you know, keep the Diamondbacks uh, off off the bases, not off the bases, but keep them from from stealing uh, as much as, as maybe they would like to. D-backs had an interesting series against the Phillies where they really didn't steal at all in the first five games. Lourdes Gurriel, I think, had their only stolen base. <laughs> Uh, through the first five games of that series, they they kind of got to them in the in the last couple games, and you know started looking a, a little bit more like the Diamondbacks. Uh, but just defensively, sort of what's the what's the situation with the Rangers? Are are there weak spots, and you know what what does that kind of look like? So I mean, if you asked me last year, this was one of the worst defensive teams in baseball. Like they were just so bad. I mean, they had Adoles Garcia in right field who was was very good defensively. He's got like one of the biggest arms in baseball. Like, and not only like just a big arm, but also very accurate as well. Um, he makes pretty good reads out there in right field. Um, Lily Tavares was was pretty good defensively in center field, had some more misadventures, but this year he's been a lot better. And this year, just basically everybody. I mean, outside of Marcus Simeon last year, he was the only like really like excellent defender. Jonah Heim has always been pretty good, but like Nathaniel Lowe is like and and Josh Young at the corners of the infield have been the story because Young was never mm-hmm. a guy who was gonna be like a great defensive fielder he was always a bat first guy and i watched him for years at texas tech i mean i was there when he was a freshman and i saw him like that guy's gonna have to hit and he's probably gonna hit really well (laughs) and um he's gonna be probably fine at third base and that'll be fine and he has gone from probably fine at third base to legitimately very very good to the point where i was kind of outraged that he was snubbed for a cold glove finalist and nathaniel lowe has gone from Literally the worst defensive first baseman I think I've ever seen last year. Like he was truly horrendous. Like there was a lot of jokes going around that like literally a broom with a glove attached to it might be better at first base defensively oh than Nathaniel Lowe last year. <laughs> but he has done so much work and has been so impressive that he has been one of the best defensive first baseman in all of baseball. And to go from that to this in a year has been incredible. And so, I mean, the Rangers in the outfield have some great defense. Evan Carter over there at left field uh, is is incredibly quick and is a natural center fielder, but he's playing left. So they've got basically three guys who could be center fielders on other teams out there in the outfield. Defense in the infield is is solid. And Jonah Heim is a very, very good defensive catcher, not just for controlling the run game. I don't think he's quite as good as that or anybody as good as, good as that as Gabby Moreno. But, um, I mean, blocking pitches, calling games, framing, all the things that you want your defensive catcher to do he's really good at also he's a switch hitter who hits for power it's like <laughs> real yeah. fine and the rangers by the way happened to get him in a trade for elvis andrews because they happened to pay more more salary <laughs> for elvis andrews taking on chris davis and jonah heim what an absolute thievery that trade was wow you you mentioned you mentioned evan carter and that's that's a guy that i i feel like i need to touch on because uh, I didn't really know who Evan Carter was as of a couple of weeks ago, if I'm being if I'm being totally honest. And then all of a sudden <laughs> he's kind of been I mean, I know he was he was really good down the stretch in the regular season. I'm not sure he, how, how he wasn't on my radar, um, but doesn't have a whole lot of major league experience, obviously, just I think it was 23 regular season games plus what he's mm-hmm. done in the postseason strikeout numbers. There are, are, are pretty high. Uh, but he just seems to kind of keep on hitting and uh, he's got like a BABIP in the four hundreds or something, but he just kind of keeps it there. What, what are you seeing out of Evan Carter? Does this, does this feel like, Oh, he's just, you know, he's getting some balls kind of dropping in his favor and, 
maybe he, maybe these numbers aren't sustainable or does this really feel no he was kind of a you know a, a well-ranked prospect is he is he just kind of come up and been the guy that maybe they expected him to be yeah, I mean, Evan Carter was a guy, I mean, you would be completely forgiven for him not being on your radar because he hasn't been on really anybody's radar. I mean, when the Rangers drafted him in the second round in 2020, um, he was not on, I believe it was Baseball America's top 500 prospects. And everybody on the broadcast was like, uh, uh, I I don't know anything about this kid. Um, <laughs> he's committed to Duke. Um he probably should have gone to college. I don't know. He's from Elizabethton, Tennessee, which is where uh, former Ranger, former Cowboys great uh, tight end Jason Witten is from. And that those there are the only go. two people you've ever heard of from that city. Um, <laughs> but he was a guy with intense, like extremely impressive maturity. I mean, talking to him at, at media days at, at age 20. I mean, the guy is already married to his high school sweetheart. Like it just talks like acts like a grown man, like has such a good head on his shoulders. The Rangers knew by throwing him in there. I mean, he came up after the Adolis Garcia injury um, in the final series of the year against the Astros at home where the Rangers just got absolutely waxed. The final game, Adolis Garcia sustained an injury. Looked like he may be done for the entire regular season, if not like the playoffs as well. And so the Rangers called up Evan Carter, who had spent you know, the entire season at double A and then about six days in triple A and they call him up and said, all right, we're going to put you hitting ninth. Don't try and do too much. And his nickname is full count Carter because he has a full count yeah. almost every, every single time. And so he works really good at bats. He walks, he's hitting third in this lineup because he has had such incredible at bats. So he's sandwiched in between Corey Seager and Adolis Garcia. That's how much they believe in this kid. Um, but yeah, I mean, He's got a little bit of Babbitt luck. Um, he's probably hitting the ball for a little bit more power than I thought he would. But like he's doing that because he's working great counts and he's getting good pitches to hit and he's doing damage when he sees it. I mean, the guy is is so incredibly impressed. And, you know, whenever he was talked to before game seven, I was so impressed with him because they were like, oh, were you nervous at all? Were you, you know, it's, it's game seven and it's against the Astros, the defending champs. He's like, Nah, I just love baseball. This is so much fun, guys. Like, I'm just so happy to be here. And you're like, how do you have that mentality? That's amazing. And I think that's a huge reason why he's been so successful. So this is going to be a star for years to come. And he is going to be all around baseball. Um, he's going to be like a face of baseball, I think, for years to come. Him and a guy named wow. Wyatt Langford, who's going to be coming up soon. But like the Rangers had super high hopes for this kid. And so far, he has achieved everything they could have wanted and then some i mean the rangers were doing victory laps bragging about how they stole this guy from everybody when he wasn't on top 500 draft charts literally the day after the draft they're like no we gotta steal and everyone was like okay your track record is trash but they were darn right about evan carter being an absolute steal i think guys like evan carter are are what I think makes this world series actually pretty exciting. Like, like if you're a super casual baseball fan, you're going to see diamondbacks and Rangers and it, it might be hard to sort of get excited about it for some people. I, I understand that if, if you're an outsider in this situation, but I mean, Evan Carter and Corbin Carroll and Gabby Moreno and Josh young. I mean, these are some really, really good young players that I think because you know, maybe because they play for the Diamondbacks or the Rangers, they don't necessarily get the notoriety that they should. And this World Series stage is a perfect opportunity for those guys to kind of show what they can do 
on this national stage. So, uh, Bryce, this, this should be fun. This should be crazy. Uh, this is uh, just, as I said at the top, just a crazy, I mean, just no one could have seen this coming. The Rangers and the D-backs had a combined 438 win percentage last year. For those two teams to be in the World Series is is just off the charts uh, remarkable. But uh, we'll see how it goes. And uh, Bryce, we, uh, we appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. It should be a, a fun series, a lot less stressful, a lot less back and forth vitriol than I think our, our league championship series. So let's just everyone have, be nice and, and have fun. <laughs> All right, here we are back on this PHNX D-backs podcast, a special audio only edition previewing the World Series, which is still a crazy concept. Uh, in the second segment of the show, we are joined by Jack Summers, who covers the Arizona Diamondbacks for SI's Inside the Diamondbacks. Jack, thanks for thanks for hopping on. My pleasure. How you doing, Jesse? You know, I'm I'm having to spend a lot of time with you right now, Jack. So, you know, there's there's some there's some pros and cons that come with that, but uh, I'm hanging in there. Uh, <laughs> let's go ahead and, and jump into things here with the Arizona Diamondbacks and, and the Texas Rangers. Um, already sort of with our with our earlier guests in the show went through how these offenses compare how the pitching staffs compare and, and some of those granular things uh here i want to focus on on a few key questions and um you know i, I was maybe going to pose this as a question uh to you but i think we both would have agreed on the answer instantly and it might not have been a very interesting question is uh you know what are the x factors or who is the biggest x factor in this series for the arizona diamondbacks and i think both of us instantly know that zach gallon is sort of the answer to that question i'm curious from your perspective why why that is why is Zach Gallon? i know we agree on this but why is Zach gallon so important in this series well i think first of all when you're talking about x factors usually people are thinking about you know lesser known players not necessarily the stars guys that come out of nowhere but for the diamondbacks um, they just concluded a national league championship series where Zach Gallon had two pretty bad starts two of the worst yeah. starts he's had all year and yet somehow they won that series I don't think you can count on that happening again. I think that he has to step up. He has to perform. Um, if he doesn't, it's just putting them in just too big a hole. Yeah, it is kind of weird that the Diamondbacks won the NLCS, losing three out of the four Zach Gallen merrill Kelly games. Those were sort of all seen as, as kind of the, the must-wins, I guess, in that series, or at least games the Diamondbacks would, would probably want to win, you know, at least three out of four of that did not happen. But the D-backs wound up winning all of the games in which Zach Gallen and Merrill Kelly did not pitch. And that was, you know, a, of course, a big reason why they are where they are. Zach Gallen has thrown 232 innings, I think it is at this point, if yes. you combine the regular season and the postseason. And I know that hasn't really shown itself from like a velocity standpoint. I think the velocity in, in that last start in Philly was pretty much right where it's been all season. But, you know, I think we all understand that, uh, you know, that kind of fatigue doesn't necessarily show itself just in, in velocity. There, there are other ways that fatigue shows itself and primarily in just your ability to execute pitches and kind of put them where you want to. And I think in that regard, Zach Gallen really dating all the way back to the all-star break, you could even say has just maybe not been the quality of pitcher that, that we're used to seeing at least, you know, going back to 2022 when he was, you know, obviously fantastic. What have you seen from Gallen over these last few months at large? It, it seems like this is more than just like a, you know, couple of start issue for him. Yeah, well, I mean, first on the fatigue act, aspect, like you said, uh, Brent Strom was speaking to us today, and he touched on this. The fatigue doesn't necessarily th show up, like you said, in a velocity. It's it's in hitting his spots. It's been 
uh, not being able to keep the ball on the edges of the zone and leaving them in bad places where bad things are happening. Um, you know, I, I think with Zach, it, the long ball really, it just it comes and goes, issues with the long ball. Like if you look at his yeah. first 12 starts to start the season, he gave up two homers. And then he went on a binge where he gave up a lot of home runs. I mean, from early June up until the end of August, you know, he gave up like 18 homers in 16 games. He, he got that under control in September. He only gave up two homers in the whole month of September and only one in his first two starts in the playoffs. But he's given up five home runs in his last two playoff starts. Um, and that's all about location. It's just putting the ball in the wrong spot. And if he's not able to command the edges of the zone and keep hitters off balance that way, you know, then, then he gets in trouble. So the question is, is what version of Zach Allen are we going to get? Are we going to get the guy that, you know, has with the pinpoint control, you know, hits his spots, uh, mixes it up with sequencing, or are we going to get the guy that gets predictable and leaves a fastball and a cutter over the middle of the plate to get hammered? Yeah. It was also interesting talking with, with Brent Strom today. I know you were, you were there for this. You can, you can kind of hear in, in Strom's voice and in, in literally the words that he's saying that, you know, it's not just a matter of pitch execution. There's also some strategy components at play here. And it, it seems like Brent Strom, particularly high fastballs, Brent Strom wants Zach Gallon to throw more of those than it, it kind of sounds like Zach Gallon is maybe willing to, to throw. Um, and so, it, you know, it, it certainly appears that that's, that's part of this conversation as well. It's interesting because I mean, Gallon has so many so many weapons, right? He's a, he's a tinker. He has so many different ways that he can get you out, and yet at times it seems like that's almost a it's almost to his detriment the number of weapons that he has and the number of different ways that he can get you out. At least from Brent Strom's perspective, uh, you know, it sounds like he can he can get a little he can make things a little bit overly complicated, right? And sometimes he just has to simplify. That's something that, that Stromy talked about a lot today. Yeah, the phrase he used was, uh, you know, don't play chess when, when checkers will get the job done or something like that. Right. Um, you know, he definitely wants Zach to simplify, like you said, um, throw up, pitch up at the top of the zone. He's been hammering away at that for the last two years, ever since he came over from Houston. Um, he, believe, he believes that very strongly, and he's had a lot of success um, with a lot of different pitchers getting them to do that. Um, he even sounded a little frustrated today. In discussing it, it sounded like, you know, he's been trying to get Zach to pitch at the top of the zone for a long time. And, and maybe there's some resistance there. I don't think it's inability to execute there, certainly. I mean, Zach can do that if he wants to, right? You would you would certainly think so. Um, yeah, I mean, he just has so many weapons. And, and uh, you know, it, it kind of seems like the, the change-up has maybe... Uh, become not quite the pitch that it that it once was over the last few years. He hasn't had the same feel for that pitch as he has in the past. But even so, you know, I, I think I think we all understand that he has the weapons that he needs in, in order to be the pitcher that, that the Diamondbacks need him to be. Switching gears here, I, I want to talk about the the managers in in this game. Torrey Lavello against a future Hall of Famer and Bruce Bochy, who has one you know one of the more impressive resumes of any manager who's ever who's ever managed in in this game Tori Lovello uh just lofted all sorts of compliments at, at Bruce Bochy in his pregame uh press conference today Bruce Bochy upon hearing those lofted a bunch of compliments back at Tori Lovello and that kind of seems indicative of this matchup as a whole where I, I kind of think these teams like 
sort of have this respect for each other and like even their fan bases like kind of like each other it, it seems which is funny because there's there's Suns fans and there's Mavericks fans who like can't stand each other and yet like Rangers and Diamondbacks fans are totally cool obviously they're in they're in different leagues so I guess that that's a factor there um but yeah I mean Tori Lovello against Bruce Bochy uh, Lavello has certainly evolved in in a lot of different ways, uh, particularly now in the postseason, getting to see what that looks like. Bruce Bochy has had a lot of success, obviously, this time of year in the past. Uh, what are kind of the the main things that stand out about that that matchup? Well, you know, Bochy retired or walked away after <laughs> supposedly nineteen, right? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, he was he went through from two thousand fifteen to two thousand eighteen. He went through a lot of different. Um, procedures with his heart and all of that, um, you know, health issues that right. he was dealing with. Um, and in Tory's mind, you know, he had the impression or has the feeling that Boshi's kind of like a human walking computer and all the stuff that Tory's, you know, gathering together from the analytics team to get his cards and books and try to, you know, understand all this information. He feels like Boshi has it all in his head and just does it all intuitively. But Actually, Bochi kind of responded to that a little bit, and he said, you know, we use that, those kind of analytics a lot more even in San Francisco and still here in, in Texas than a lot of people thought. Um, so that, I, I found that really interesting today. You know, there's nobody that's too old school anymore, not even Bruce Bochi. So maybe a little bit of myth-busting went on in, in today's conferences. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the best managers in this game, like, you know, you can only resist those kinds of things for, for so long, I guess. And Tori has sounded especially almost paranoid about that at times. You know, his concern about, I don't want to get stuck in, 19, in 1985 or 2005 or, or whatever it is. I guess another thing I'm, I'm curious, sort of along these lines, what, what you think about or how you think about this. Tori's had a lot of success so far in the postseason. The Diamondbacks are 9-3. and three. They swept their first two series. They're in the World Series. And he's had to make a lot of tough decisions along the way, right? Uh, time and time again, uh, you know, I think back to, to you know, Tori allowing Brandon Fott to face Brandon Marsh, to face the bottom of the, of the Phillies lineup just, just a few days ago. And how in the moment, you know, a lot of us up in the press box are kind of wondering, this doesn't seem on paper like a very smart decision. And yet it worked out. And that's kind of been a trend throughout the postseason. Not every decision that he's made has necessarily worked, but the vast majority of them have. It's sort of hard to evaluate, right? Because it's such a small sample with these kinds of things. You don't know over like a long period of time, you know, what, what the success rate on some of these things would be. But... I guess it's safe to say that Tori Lovello has seems to be a pretty good manager this time of year. Is that are we sort of at that point where we can say that? I think he's evolved. I think he's developed. I mean, it wasn't that long ago, 2017, where the mantra was get 21 outs from your starters. <laughs> uh, you know, now he's addicted to bullpen games. <laughs> uh, but uh... you know, it, essentially. Um, Good pitchers that are executing pitches coming in out of the bullpen will make any manager look smart. But when we talk to Tori about these um, decisions that we question, he almost always has a reasonable explanation. And he says, you know, you've got to believe me. We, whatever decisions I'm making, we're, we've thought about this. We've game planned this. We've looked yeah. at every possible situation. Which, so I, I mean, it'd be sort of astonishing if it wasn't that way. But, 
Well, yes. I guess what I've learned after pontificating up in the press box, as you said uh, so many times, is we can think something's not right and really strongly question it, but I try not to write about that until I've had a chance to ask him. Sure. Because once, you know, once I've heard from him, usually if he's made a bad decision, he'll, he'll own it up, right? He'll own up to it. He'll say, yep, I, I made a mistake on that one. I screwed that up. And then we write about it and we give him a hard time about it. But more often than not, when we think he did something wrong, he's got a good enough explanation. And we might mention it because that was the, the main topic on social media and, and the buzz. But we also kind of end up half explaining for him. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I mean, uh, you know, obviously they have far more information in the dugout than, than we're aware of. There's a lot more that goes into these decisions than, than we often know. Big picture wise. I'm not gonna ask you to make a prediction because I know that's an unfair question and I don't particularly enjoy it when people ask me that question. So I'm not gonna do that to you. But big picture, Texas Rangers probably have the advantage in this series on paper. The sure. difference between the offenses is, is just seems to be bigger than whatever advantage the Diamondbacks have in any other respect. And I think they do have some, like I think the Diamondbacks bullpen Maybe inches out the Rangers' bullpen at this point, which is... I think more than inches them out. I think it's significantly better. And the question is, is can they maintain that? Right. And getting some length out of Gallon is a good start to that, right? Because you don't want to overwork these guys too early in the series. Yeah, and I mean, it is pretty wild to be talking about the Diamondbacks in the World Series with their bullpen being an advantage. I, I don't know what's happened over the last two months um, that, that we somehow are at this point. But yeah, I think the Diamondbacks have the, the better back end. Seawald and Ginkle have been unreal uh, in this uh, over these last couple months, and they haven't given up a run here in the postseason. Hard to do better than that. Um, I guess, you know, in other respects, defense, I think both of these teams are pretty pretty solid defensively. D-backs maybe have an advantage there. Base running wise, the D-backs, you know, probably steal more bases, but the Rangers have actually run a little bit so far in, in the playoffs. It's maybe not a huge difference, but something that would lean toward the Diamondbacks. The D-backs have some, some advantages in the series theoretically, but looking at this Rangers lineup with Adolis Garcia, right, with Corey Seager, with Jonah Heim, who hasn't really hit much so far in the playoffs, but is an accomplished hitter, Marcus Semien. This is a really, really deep lineup. And you could probably say, we're talking about this earlier, maybe a better lineup than the Phillies. You think that's fair to say? Um, they were a better lineup than the Phillies. They had a better offense than the Phillies uh, during the regular season. Um, no question about that. I mean, their rankings yeah. and runs per game and OPS and any other metric you want to hit. Um, was better than better than the Phillies, so I don't think you know you need to hedge your your comment there. Um, and clearly, what they just did in the uh, ALCS shows that you know they're firing. I, I will say this: you know, look at a guy like Garcia. I mean, he is a low batting average, low OBP guy. I mean, he runs really hot and cold. Now he doesn't get any hotter than what he just did. Five homers, 15 RBIs in the ALCS, but you know <laughs> maybe it's time for Christian Walker to get that kind of hot. Sure. Yeah. And the Diamondbacks do have guys who theoretically have underperformed up to this point in the postseason. It's not like, you know, everyone is playing out of their minds and that's how they got here. Lourdes Gurriel, there's certainly some room for improvement there. Uh, Tommy Pham, there's there's a lot of room for improvement. Evan Longoria is really, you know, not not hit much, um, if at all, <laughs> at least in, in most of these games. 
So yeah, I think you know the, the the biggest advantage in this series is certainly the Rangers' offense over the Diamondbacks' offense. But over the course of a small series, at the end of the day, who knows? Who knows how how that's going to play out? I think you know one of the things, even over the last two games against the Phillies, um, you know where they were impressive and how they won, but situational hitting. They were like one for ten and two for eleven. Yeah. Over the last two games, and in, in runners in scoring position and. You know, they've hit 18 homers in 12 playoff games. This isn't exactly the formula that's been drawn up for this particular <laughs> team to win baseball games. And, you know, how how often are they going to be able to go in against a big slugging team and outslug them? It's just not something you can count on. So they're going to have to deliver their hits at the bottom of the order. The veterans, uh, you know, like you said, Longoria, Walker, Tommy Pham, they they got to they gotta get going. They're going to have to take turns delivering some hits. Uh, I can't depend everything on Cattell and Corbin at the top. Yeah, uh, it, it is it is pretty crazy to think about how this offense is just uh, hitting home runs is sort of like now kind of in their arsenal. At least it has been uh, to this point in the postseason. They're averaging like two homers a game. But yeah, the, the Diamondbacks are playing in the World Series tomorrow or today, I guess, depending on when you're listening to the show. And uh, it's going to be uh, pretty crazy to watch. Uh, one of the biggest... Uh, I don't know, like, it's going to be fun to think back when all of this is over to, like, where this season for the Diamondbacks ranks in terms of, like, everything that's ever happened in Arizona sports because you have to you have to figure that what no matter what happens in this series, this this un- unprecedented run by the Diamondbacks is is certainly going to be something that we remember for a long time. Uh, but, Jack, thanks for thanks for hopping on. My pleasure. We appreciate it. Uh, is there is there anything you want anything you want to plug here? Your your site, your Twitter account, your X account, I guess I should say. Oh uh, well, you can uh, visit our website si.com/mlb/diamondbacks, and we provide as much good coverage as we can. And um, I get a lot of great ideas from Jesse here, and I appreciate <laughs> the uh, back and forth that we have every day in the press box. It's a lot of fun. We have entirely too many conversations about baseball and have over the last several months. Uh, anyway, well, this is uh, that's going to do it for this special bonus edition here of the PHNX D-Back show. Appreciate everyone tuning in. Uh, once again, the Diamondbacks are playing in game one of the World Series uh, on, on Friday night. Uh, should be a lot of fun uh, see what happens. And, of course, we'll be live after the game ends, so be sure to check that out as well.